Welcome to Your Partner in Success Radio, a program that values the potential of knowledge, collaboration, and growth. The show is hosted by Denise Griffiths, who is known as an intensely curious nerd in stilettos. Each Wednesday, she is joined by co-host Ben Gay III, a renowned figure in the sales world. Ben is recognized for introducing The Closers, one of the most popular and powerful sales training materials ever produced. Having been mentored by Dr. Napoleon Hill himself, Ben has gained a wealth of knowledge in sales and life. Throughout the show, Denise and Ben delve into the world of sales, entrepreneurship, and success, exploring Ben's vast experience from guiding and mentoring countless professionals to achieve unparalleled success in their careers. Together, they offer unmatched guidance to listeners seeking success in their professional endeavors. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Closers Inner Circle Podcast, hosted by your partner in Success Radio. Excuse me. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and together with my co-host, Ben Gay III, we are diving into the world of sales mastery with the gym from the closers part two. Now these books one and two are widely known as the sales Bibles. Last week we covered breaking the sales myth. Your prospects don't want your product. And that was from page 85. Today we delve into the art of communication and sales again, inspired by insights from the closers part two, but this time we're on page 137. Today we're focusing on the importance of eloquent speech and writing in the sales industry. And believe me, they're two different things. We're going to talk about that this week and again next week when we follow up on that. But it's about mastering a comprehensive and effective vocabulary and adopting the kind of polished demeanor that ideally we would have learned from our upbringing. Our goal today is to guide sales professionals on how to elevate their communication skills, not just in what they say, but how they say it. And we're going to explore strategies for refining your linguistic prowess. I, prowess. I was so good. I got linguistic right. And then I missed prowess. <laughs> I'm trying not to cough on everybody and reading at the same time. Apparently, I cannot multitask. But <laughs> we, we want to ensure that your message is not only heard, but it resonates with your audience, thereby transforming your sales approach into an art form of persuasion and influence. So if you have the Closers books in your entrepreneurial library, open up the Closers part two to page 137. I love this title. Watch your mouth. Good morning, Ben. It's Wednesday. Good morning. I'm proud of you. You've got through a big word and then uh, screwed up the next one. I've had days like that. It's going to happen. I don't know why I think I can talk out loud. I really, it's something I probably shouldn't do as much of as I've been doing today. And I'm losing my voice a little bit. So if I can either say the word properly or cough, and I'm going to choose to just flub the words. (laughs) There's some words that cause coughing. You reminded me of, I came off the stage one day somewhere. And uh, William Penn Patrick, Bill Patrick, one of my early mentors and the owner of the big cosmetic company I was president of, uh, sort of signaled me to come over and talk to him. And he said, I don't know why you're so fond of the word, but if you insist on using it five times in every talk, it's oriented, not orientated. Oh. You know, 
<laughs> now compare... it's stuck in my head. Gonna... <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, I started to argue with him. Orientated sounds more logical to me and sort of the way the word is spelled out and so on. But it turned out he was right. And I had another lady in about that same era come up to me and she said, uh, I'm just curious, you say uh, frequently that if somebody makes a mistake, they were hoisted on their own petard. And I said, yeah, I got that from my mother. It's one of her favorite phrases. She said, do you know what a petard is? And I thought it was a lance. I pictured a guy, you know, galloping along on a horse with a lance. That was a petard. And somehow he dropped the lance, got his uniform hooked under it and raised up on it. And I, so I gave her my explanation. She said, not really. Why don't you look it up when you get back to your room or your whatever? Well, it turns out petard is a downward blast of gas. I know. You know that? I didn't know yeah. it. Because I used to, I read all the time. I've read all my life and I would see that, you know, I read a lot of English books mm -hmm. and, you know, books that I probably shouldn't have been reading at three, four or five and six, but <laughs> I love the words. And I finally looked it up. And I went, oh, well, crap, because I had the same mental image you did. <laughs> it's like, no. Well, like, it turns I... out I, between those two conversations, I took for years, I wouldn't say oriented or orientated either one because I'd lose track of which one was right. And I took hoisted on your own petard out of the act altogether and then <laughs> called my mother and I said, mother, you know that thing you say? Oh, yes, yes. I, I say it frequently. Do you know what it means? And she described a knight on a horse. And so I said, no, look it up. And next time I talked to her, she said, oh, my God. <laughs> now, though, you can rewrite that. Now, when you see somebody riding along on horseback and all of a sudden they're up in the saddle for no reason that you can yeah. determine, guess what they're doing? They're hoisting. So, on, their, on their own petard. That's exactly right. <laughs> I anyway, it's, it's funny. And, and when you come from the South, like I do and you do, uh, we have our own, we have, have a tendency to insert additional syllables into a word that doesn't oh, yeah. exist uh, there's a guy on television now doing some sort of pain pill i've seen his commercials and uh, his wife gave him the pills and three days later three weeks later whatever he said the pain was gone <laughs> and <laughs> he, he says, how, how do you get how do you get three syllables out of gone well go, go put gas in your car seriously do gas go gas your car oh oh sure yeah that's sure. two syllables at a minimum yeah <laughs> well anyway language is funny i had to get to sort of the subject we're on today i was blessed to a degree by a father although he was raised in alabama and had southern colloquialisms i hope i got that close to right you did uh, that he used uh, he was a very sophisticated guy, helped along by my mother, who went to upper class prep schools and colleges in New England. She went to school with the Bushes and the Kennedys and so on. Her father was a judge. And uh, so she spoke very proper English with almost a British accent. It was a New England accent. So I just grew up speaking reasonably properly because of what you hear that right. was fortunate and uh 
with a few exceptions, we hung out, mom and dad, and I got to hang out with them, with a crowd of upper-class, successful people who, by and large, there were a few exceptions here and there, but by and large, spoke and, and uh, I assume, wrote well. And then a senior in high school, having been thrown out of two high schools before I got to my senior year <clears throat> at Murphy High School in Atlanta, I stumbled into the room of Ms. Griffin. I, I don't know if she had a first name when I was going to school. Teachers didn't have first names. It was just Miss Griffin, I think, was what we called her. It was prior to Ms. And uh, I had gone to the wrong. I'd been away for almost two years. I come back. I'm supposed to go to class number so-and-so. And I arrive late in the class because I went to the wrong one. I'm looking around at people thinking, God, they, everybody in here is short. I'm not a giant, but they were all shorter. Well, it turned out I was in an eighth grade class instead of a senior class. And it was <laughs> history, history, not English. Uh -oh. So when I realized my mistake, I got up and ran down the hall. And I went literally like Kramer on uh, whatever that show is where he skids into the room. Seinfeld. Uh, I went skidding into Ms. Griffin's Griffith's room and uh, she looked up I'd never met her before but apparently she'd been briefed that Ben Gay is returning to school <clears throat> prep school didn't work out either <laughs> you know but I, she told me later but I was told you were a nice and funny guy so I went skidding in she looked up and she said Mr. Gay I presume because everybody laughed and I thought, oh, this is not good. I'd hope to sit on the back row and have her not know my name all year long. And she got a chair out of the, the assemblage, one of those chairs with the desktop built into it and room to store your books underneath and dragged it up, turned it around facing the class and put it right next to her desk. Ow. She, said, she, she, she said, young man, this is your desk all year long. You're going to sit here with me and you're going to uh, win the state writing championship and you're going to speak at graduation. That was hysterical to me. They were all hysterical, but uh, especially speak at graduation because I thought that was valedictorian and salutatorian, neither one of which was going to be me. But I didn't know she had the ability to name who wrote, memorized, and recited the prayer at graduation. So I, it was possible for me to speak at graduation. And uh, she was helpful to me in getting up and giving reports and so on, sort of eased me into speaking in front of a group. And then at graduation, I walked down from my seat on the eighth or tenth row went down in front of front of three thousand people and did that stand up motion with both hands and three thousand people stood up and i thought oh this is good i really like this feeling <laughs> i want i want to do simon says sit down sit down, sit down. Uh, and then i heard my voice of course in rehearsals i'd heard it but now i heard my voice over a microphone reverberating through the Atlanta Municipal Auditorium. And I didn't know what public speaking was or how to get into it. And I'd already won the state writing championship, but my life had been turned around. It took a few other little things along the way to firm it up.
but I was ready to go just with those two instances, one teacher, and, and there were two English teachers. I often wonder, why did God send me to Miss Griffin's room instead of uh, the other one? If it had been the other one, you and I might not be talking today. See, that, I, I almost don't even know how to respond to that. I mean, teaching is a skill, yes. but it requires compassion, and it requires that you're not standing in front of a chalkboard and telling everybody in the room to learn the same thing today or else. Exactly. I hated school. I hated it. I was not cut out for that. I was going to do my own thing. I always did, always have. And my teachers finally figured that out. Then they, they pretty much left me alone because they knew I was intelligent. They knew I got it. They also knew I was a smart ass. <laughs> with no filters so they tended not to pick on me too too much i was very quiet but when i had something to say i said it with verve and finesse and they never forgot it but i got through school literally just by looking at them you know i would just look at them like what do you want me to do i've already done it Leave me alone yeah, i didn't talk much i really didn't but i don't know i hated school but it was a factory it really was. Yeah. But occasionally you bump into my love of history came from the yeah, same year. That's the we, only course that I absolutely, I would show up early for that one. Everything else, yeah. He, he, Mr. Evans, American history teacher, senior year, I met him within an hour of getting out of Ms. Griffin's class. Uh, I walk in and he's talking about the, the Maginot line, World War II. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I really don't know much about it other than they put up a, what they thought was an impenetrable thing that would keep the Germans out of France, and it didn't work. And he, he was saying as I sat down, I don't care that you know the date it was built or the, day it, the date it failed. That's not the issue. The issue is why did they build it and what was their mistake? In other words, a generality but the most important part of the concept. And that's the way he taught history. All, we were never given a test where you had to remember on July 13th in Spain, you know, whatever, this happened. He wanted to know what happened and why and what were the results and was there a mistake. And I fell in love with history. I'd had no interest in, zero interest in it. And again, life-changing. And I'm at my senior, and if I hadn't been thrown out of prep school, I wouldn't have met either one of those people because we were down to the, the the final strokes in my senior year in high school and bang, and within an hour, bang, and everything turned around. Another uh, uh, thing that happened, happenstance, uh, it seemed, I, and I've told you this before, but I'll keep it short. I was had been brought out to the home office of Holiday Magic Cosmetics, along with Zig Ziglar and several other rising stars in the company, to become a, a training person. They called it instructor general, and we were out in California for 30 days going through this training. And one of the things was to learn the scripts, and one of the scripts was a 47-minute opportunity meeting. Well. We did whatever we did that morning, and they came in and yelled at us and act like drill sergeants. And then we went back into the bowels of the office 
found rooms to go in and start practicing our scripts. I forgot my manual. I didn't have my script with me. But we'd already done a little presentation that morning on video, on the old Betamax video recorder. And uh, that, that's neither here nor there, except for what happened. I go back to get my manual into the training room. I come in through somebody else's office. Therefore, I came in behind William Penpatrick, the owner of the company, and Fred Pape, then the president of the company, right before I became president. And they're staring at the Betamax screen uh, that had folded up. This is reel-to-reel -reel video. And I heard my voice. They were watching what I did that morning. And Bill Patrick said, oh, Fred Pape said, he's good. And Bill Patrick said, I will pay more for the ability to effectively communicate than any other skill. So I did the moonwalk back out of the room. They never knew I was there. I'm picturing it. So keep going. I'll yeah. be laughing, but you keep going. <laughs> uh, I did the moonwalk, went back down and Bill Dempsey, who brought me into the business, was my training partner. He says, where's your manual? I saw I'll, I'll work out of yours. Uh, they were doing something there, and I don't want to interrupt them. I'll pick it up at lunch. He never knew what I'd overheard them say. But again, my life had changed. And But I was prepared for it. Truman once said, what a man does on some great occasion will be determined by what he already is. And what he already is will be determined by years of prior preparation. Well, if I had heard them say that, minus Ms. Griffin, uh, it wouldn't have had any effect, but I was ready. I'd spoken in front of 3,000 people. Um, I knew how to write and, and, and I knew how to memorize. I'd done all that. So when I heard that, it was like Truman saying, here's your great opportunity and you're ready. Take advantage of it. And that turned me into a professional speaker, a professional trainer. I've authored 35 books, including a few bestsellers, <clears throat> all because of my ability to effectively communicate, not as well as a lot of people, but to effectively communicate better than most. And that, going back to the chapter we're in today, page 137, Watch Your Mouth, that is one of the keys to uh, sales training, selling professionally, personal development, and so on, the ability to. And people say, how do you learn how to do that? Let me give you a, one example. Read. I, I used to take Vanity Fair magazine. They've since lost all their great writers. They've retired, died, been fired, whatever. But I used to take Vanity Fair magazine, which looked a little odd at the post office. They thought it was Gigi's. Uh, because of the writing, I could learn how to write by reading Vanity Fair. Today, you can learn how to write by reading other publications. Wall Street Journal might be one. You actually learn about business while you're reading it. But more importantly, you, you learn about writing. Oh, that's an interesting way he or she wrote that phrase or this is an interesting way or whatever. And then you begin to notice little things like rarely, unless it's in quotes, will you see an exclamation mark. They write 
at level tone. Here are the facts. And uh, let me get those to you first. Then if I'm excited about something, I can punch it up or not. But first, I got to deliver you the facts. And you and I were talking earlier, Ms. Griffin said to me, uh, one of the tricks to writing, Ben, is to write at a sixth grade level. And then she said, and for you, Mr. Gay, that won't be difficult. So I I, like her. I sort of thought that was an insult. I'm not sure. <laughs> but it simplified my writing and to a degree my speaking. I have a thesaurus here that I used to use when writing because I sometimes would try and find a bigger word than I would have naturally used to make myself look smart. And sometimes if you're ghostwriting, I would use it to use a bigger word because it took up more space and I could finish the book quicker. <laughs> that doesn't mean people reading it could understand it. Um, but I had to learn how to tone that down. I I know bigger words than I use. Yeah, same uh, much here. of the time. Yeah, it, I know you do because uh, in casual conversation you use the bigger words. But when we're I, recording, and I even sometimes pronounce them properly. Occasionally. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love you too. <laughs> You're supposed bless, to help me out there. Bless your heart. Yeah. That's it. And for you that's people who are, are not Southerners, when some Southerner says to you, bless your heart, it is not bless your heart. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's an not. entirely different phrase and meaning. And if Please. we say, bless your little heart, that means oh. you're too stupid to ever get it washed off. You're just stuck <laughs> with it. <laughs> Deal with it. So the ability to effectively communicate, whether you're speaking or writing, is a crucial skill. I, I read somewhere one day, everybody always quotes a Harvard study. I doubt it was a Harvard study, but somewhere, somebody took the time to measure, allegedly, uh, when you light up a cigarette, and I used to smoke three packs a day, so I'm not looking down on anybody. I, I quit 40 plus years ago, but uh, I know what it's like to smoke, and I know when it used to be cool to smoke. You know, it was a way to look sophisticated. Now, if you light up a cigarette, I've read that your IQ, the the assumption of your IQ drops I think the figure was 67%, but it was up to, it was over 50%. The assumption of your presumed IQ drops over 50% just because you lit the cigarette. If you're speaking to somebody and you use my killer one, there's a bunch of them, but my killer ones are I, me, and myself. You know, Denise and me went to lunch. Wrong. Wrong, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, myself had lobster <laughs> wrong all by yourself <laughs> yeah, yeah or as we say in the south my own self well there's that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that yeah. i don't consider my, a mistake my favorite is jeet yet it's three words oh, in yeah. my, <laughs> four words jeet and we all understand no not yet how about you brother dave gardner the southern comedian used to say and I did that by my own self. And I, I, I found it so intriguing. I picked it up. And I'll, I'll sometimes, I know it's wrong, but I still enjoy using it because it sounds 
clever and funny to me anyway. Or he'd say, so I said to my, I said to myself, self, yeah. self say, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but I've noticed you do this and I do it too. When we say something that we know is wrong, like I'll, you know, say right. something. Something along the like, I am one. I'll say, well, I is one, but I say it in a deep Southern accent. Yeah. Just because I'm poking self, you know, fun of myself, I want people to know that I understood what I just said, and it was garbage. <laughs> so here you go. My I mother is one. My mother, the proper Bostonian, used to say, uh, "I don't care what you say. Just tell them you were raised better." she had washed her hands of responsibility for me but she didn't want any of those of the negative to splash over on her or my father so just tell them you were raised better well that covers a lot of ills but you know we're talking about speech patterns we all have them i'll catch i'll hear myself every once in a while i was having a conversation god we all do this i know we do with my cats this morning and I realized that there is a, a speech pattern that I have going on with this one particular cat Hamilton is an ass and he's very loud he's very vociferous he is my son the cat and you know he'll be chatting at me and I'll say oh really uh-huh yeah. and then I, I caught myself listening to what was because I knew it was going to come out of my mouth next and we did several rounds of oh really uh-huh and then finally, I'll say to him, do you feel this way all over or just in spots? And off we go again. <laughs> so <it's> just, <laughs> The conversations that you have when you think nobody's listening can be important. They may tell you that you're Looney Tunes or that you have a good sense of humor. Pick your poison. And there, there's guess. a fine line between those two. Very, <laughs> very. <laughs> and the cat talks back. So there is that. We have two cats that have adopted us. And uh, they adopted us because Gigi put food out. And then when they came through the doggy door, we'd lost our dogs. And uh, and Gigi said, I wonder if he'll ever, the, the lead cat, Thomas, I wonder if he'll ever let me teach, uh, touch his head. I thought of that as I left the bedroom this morning. The cat was on her, chin to chin, and moving his head around so she'd scratch his head and I said well it looks like you got through that barrier he's now <laughs> letting you <laughs> touch his head and no letting, letting training. Yeah. he and trained he, her right and it, she said she'll say to him you can't have another treat we already did that and I said hang yeah, on. I know I know, so, I hang, know. same thing I'm I like, say, hang on Thomas <laughs> she'll crack in a second and then you hear the treat jar come up and rattle again, and she puts some more out for him and and uh, so on. So we, we all do it. But good point. I hadn't really thought of this. Good point in that there's casual talk. There's the way I talk to my friends on the back porch when we're barbecuing something. Hey, no. And there, uh, are you all talking right, to the you. cat or me? Yes, it's Odalie. She's my 18-year-old diabetic. And she pretends that she has kitty dementia. She eats every 15 minutes, it seems like. And she's standing right next to the closed bathroom door because she knows her food is in there and she wants it. And she doesn't care who you are or I am. She wants her food. And I didn't mean to do that. I thought I was muted. So sorry. <laughs> I thought, God, I did something. What did I say no. that would cause her to yell no at me? No, I'm talking to the cat. <laughs> sorry about that. But what I started to say, and again, this is 
you led me into it even better. Uh, there's casual chat, uh, and I do that, and I and I do the is thing from time to time with friends, but not in, on stage in front of ten thousand people. And I know some of the most popular uh, speakers in the country now. I'll leave them unnamed. Use the F word like we used to use it in the Coast Guard. Yeah, uh, yeah I don't like a, it. It's, it's, an, it's not a noun, a verb, an adjective, an adverb, you know. And uh, I understand that in the service. And I guess it's acceptable in front of big groups, but not by me. Because I'm just going to pick a number out of the air. 50% of the people are offended by it. They're religious or were, relays, were raised properly or something, and they cringe. I do cringe. I, I wouldn't yeah. say that I was offended, but I do wince. It's like, mm. will you talk about those IQ points? I don't care about the cigarettes. I do care about the stench. I care about oh, that. Yeah. If I'm but, working a line of people and yeah, somebody passes care. by me and I got a little whiff of smoke, I'll smell my hand because oh. they just shook hands with me and I thought, damn. Yeah, they don't. Somebody got me. They yeah. got me. <laughs> they have to wear a sign that says, I'm a smoker, don't touch me. Yeah, it's 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 hard for me to, I can't tolerate it really, but it's your deal. If you want to smoke, go for it. But I will not hang within three feet of you. I just can't. It really yeah. bothers me. But, you so, know, when you're talking ahead. about, oh, I lost my train of thought. Okay, you, you go and then I'll, I'll chime in. I'll or double interrupt. back. Yeah. The uh, circle round, as the press secretary used to say. I'll circle back. Yeah, circle back. Uh, yeah. The, the point was, watch your mouth, uh, watch your appearance. All the things that could possibly affect somebody could make a sale if done properly, kill a sale if not. My uh, mother-in-law, now gone, used to say, to my brother-in-law recently gone as of July 4th. Um, she said, David, she would try and clean up his uh, grammar. He was raised properly, but somehow he sort of became a mountain man, you know, lived in a hut on a lot of property, hunted and fished and so on, and hung out with people who did. And she would say, Here, here's the good news about using good grammar. No one will criticize you for using good grammar. They may not even notice but they will think you're an idiot if you use bad grammar, at least some of them, maybe not his friends, but at least some of them uh, are offended by it. The F-bomb uh, is, uh, I was in the Boy Scouts. I was a young man. I was in the Coast Guard. Uh, trust me, I'm not easily offended. And I've used all the words that I would not use in front of 10,000 people in a seminar. Difference is, Stand around with a bunch of people on the back deck. I can probably get away with it by by our rules. I don't do business with friends. I have people I do business with who become friends, but the people who were friends to start with, uh, we just don't do business with. It's not worth it. If something goes wrong, you the job is screwed up, and you've lost a friend. So with those people, I'll let down my hair a little bit if it's appropriate. There are some jokes that aren't funny unless you use the effective word at the right time. They don't they don't fly without it. I got that. But this uh, podcast is based on you and me talking to 
fellow business people, whether they're salespeople, business people, whatever. And in with that role being played and your business person hat on, it's like show business. I've told you before, when I go out of the front door in the morning, if I do, uh, on the way to some business situation, I say to myself, sometimes out loud, it's showtime. Right. right. From this moment on, from this doorstep on, I'm on stage. People are watching. People are forming their opinions. And I become a cleaned up version of Ben Gay. Not phony. It's just there's two ways you can act. You can be on a, on a camping trip with a bunch of guys you've known since high school. Uh, that might bring on a different side of you. And you can be with a group of investment bankers sitting around a boardroom table. Those are two different roles. Not significantly different in my case now. I'm not smart enough to remember two different languages. But I'm, I clean it up when I'm sitting at the boardroom table when I'm in front of 10,000 folks, because I know if I don't, listen up, folks, it costs me money. If they think I'm stupid, unethical, a cusser, poorly dressed, whatever, it costs me money. So why would I do that? Especially after you've gone all, all that trouble to get in a position to make money. So clean up your grammar, Learn how to communicate effectively, both in writing. Uh, I get, I know you get them all the time because of your other business and, uh, on the computer and websites and podcasts and all. I probably get 15 or 20 emails a day that want to redo my website or give me 1,500 leads by noon, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And invariably, they're going to write something for me. And invariably, they don't know the English language, either because they're from Nigeria yeah. or they're from here and just ignorant. Listen, there was some years back, and this is, you know, really in keeping what we're talking about. As part of my web development agency, I was also a very well-known virtual assistant back before everybody and their grandmother who had a keyboard also became a, a virtual assistant. I got out of it. It just got too messy. I didn't want to, you know, spend a lot of time in the low end of the pond, but I would get, and this doesn't happen anymore, but I would get resumes unasked for that were emailed to me that were in text speak. Like that's the best you've got. I wouldn't even respond. <laughs> if you're that ignorant that you think I'm going to listen to you are for yours and, you know, there's a couple of different ways to spell your, and, but you are is not it. And I mean, I remember being just so frustrated and so irritated and thinking, okay, you are stupid. It was a judgment call and it was not nice of me, but when you present as stupid, I have to take you at your word. Absolutely. And so do our customers, Denise's right. customers, my customers, and all the people listening to this. And you generally don't know when you've gone over the edge, people usually won't stop and correct you. There are grammar Nazis on the, on the web, uh, but in person, they generally won't. They'll just say, oh, he's, he or she's not very smart. Huh, that's interesting. But now he wants to take over my financial portfolio. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we've just determined he's not smart. 
Yeah, he didn't have a brain in his head, poor thing. Yeah. <laughs> David Brown, you were talking about him earlier because I guess you talked to him earlier today. Uh, great guy, smart as a, as a, sharp as a whip or a whatever the phrase is. Funny, I can't, he can't think of the words. Smart because he listens to me and I, I tell him what to do sometimes and he says, okay, so we're going to have to dial that one back. But plus we're, we're working on a business venture and he's just, he's great. But every once in a while he'll say, I don't know about that, Denise. I'm like, Oh, well, you know what? He's right. <laughs> he's good. But, but he's an example of, I've spent time with him. We've been to a couple of seminars together and spent, I don't know, two, three, four days around each other twice, I think. And uh, he speaks well. He presents himself well. He's sharp as a tack. That was probably one of the words I was looking for earlier. Smart as a whip. That's the other one. And uh, I would trust him with anything he claimed to be good at. I know what he's officially good at, but if he said he was a good trout fisherman, I go, great. If I want to learn how to trout fish, let's go. He's trustworthy and articulate yeah. and so on. I hope he's listening to this because. Uh, he know, always does. And I have to tell you, he told me years ago, the first time he met you, because I we were chatting about Bengay the Third. You know, we were talking about you for some reason. And he said, you know, I sat next to him at one of Tony Rebleski's, you know, deals seminars and he said i didn't know he was ben gay the third for a couple of days he was so embarrassed he didn't he just liked you he didn't know who you were and what you did i gotta work on that <laughs> I, had, I had a mouthful of iced tea when you the pause came uh i've got to work on that first impression thing two days and he didn't know who i was that's amazing <laughs> I normally i go hi i'm ben gay just like the back row yeah, but he, I don't think he understood who Ben Gay was. Yeah, and the importance of your presence there. You know, he, basically, what he was saying was he didn't know he was sitting next to a rock star. <laughs> well, uh, now that I know that, uh, David, everything I said nice about you earlier, moments ago, I take back. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, David. It's my no, fault. He, he's a great example of what we're talking about. He speaks properly. He speaks effectively. Uh, I've seen some of his writing, but I didn't have that on my mind, but it was good. And uh, But mainly, he presents himself well. My father once described, he said, Ben, picture a basketball that's got handles sticking out of it. Picture round handle, handles that are the shape of the side of the basketball. And they're sticking out, but you can push them in where they you couldn't use them to pick up the ball. Sort of like a suitcase of some sort. And he said, now picture it covered with Vaseline. And he said, that's your job as a salesperson. Don't give them anything to hang on to that's negative about you. If they're trying to find something bad, have all the handles in and have them greased. You can't be caught saying something stupid or uh, cussing or whatever. My father had a rule if he, he ran a sales organization as a food broker. He would not hire you until he had, besides the normal interview and checking your references and whatever, but he wouldn't hire you until he'd had a meal or two with you in a public setting. 
and you were there to eat. He was there to study you, how you treated the wait staff, how you interacted with people at other tables, if appropriate. You know, I go into a restaurant. By the time we leave, I know I know everybody in the restaurant. That Gigi's forever saying to me, could you contain yourself this time? And I said, well, I'd, I'd like to, but I, I just can't. <laughs> she ought to know by now. And see, when I go into a restaurant, I have to tell myself, do not trip those kids. Oh, Your yeah. parents like them. Do not deliberately trip them when they run past you for the 18th time. <laughs> I make faces at them when their parents aren't looking. And they invariably make a face back. And I say, ma'am, excuse me, it's none of my business, but your kid's making faces at me. And, <laughs> and if the kids don't say it, Gigi says, he started, started it. it. <laughs> <laughs> so you are a much nicer, more compassionate person than I am. You know, when kids get completely out of control, yeah, I want to trip the kid, but I also want to walk over and slug the parents. So yeah. I try not to be out in, you know, too many restaurants by myself. Gigi has a friend who, a great lady, but she uh, is, she would have made a good Nazi. And I don't mean that anti-Semitically. I just mean hard by the rules and abrupt talk and so on. I love her. She she should have been a man in that she'd get along better with men than most gentle, sweet women. But uh, they're having lunch somewhere and two of those obnoxious kids are running around and then somehow came up to their table, Denise and Audrey's her name. And Audrey turned to the <laughs> to the kids and said, Gigi said with a stare that would have melted a block of ice, turned to them and said, Go be cute over there. I love I've done stuff like that. I was at a funeral party one time. I don't know what you call it. It's the, the whole thing after the funeral. And I had to be there. It was a relative of sorts. And I didn't want to be there. I'm claustrophobic. And I didn't like the person who died all that much. Anyway, lots of reasons for me not to be there. And these kids were just raising all kinds of ruckus. And the mom would say, go outside. Okay, mom, that was effective. And somebody <laughs> else would say, uh, please go outside. And I stood up and I looked at him. I said, go outside now. Not another word was said. They all went outside and they stayed outside. Apparently I scared them. Yeah. Well, that they was, weren't my uh, kids, but I'd had enough. It was either that or slug somebody. Jesus said it was hard to be a prophet in your own hometown. And that's what the mother had encountered. They, they've dealt with her their whole lives and they've learned that orders disobeyed have no consequences right and right. with you they weren't sure <laughs> oh, they were sure <laughs> they, <laughs> when i when i get really ticked off i get very quiet and i get very cool mannered i scare the bejeebers out of myself every once in a while so you know they they went out and they stayed out and this one lady looked at me she goes you're scary. And I said, I know. She said, I like that. <laughs> it's me too. <laughs> we have a doormat. First of all, a friend of Gigi's came by. Her name is Marilyn. For some reason, I don't know, to drop off something. And she sent one of her grandchildren up the door to do it. He was about five, I, I think. And uh, she watched him get up to the front door, look down, drop whatever it was he was supposed to deliver and run back to the car. And she said, uh, she said, what's wrong? She said, they're scary. And she said, what? And he says, well, the doormat says, go away. Come <laughs> back with wine. 
<laughs> and I, I guess he only got to go away. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> he probably wasn't old enough to read the whole sentence and comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, it worked. It really worked. So we're having way too much fun here. So I wanted to ask you, what strategies, I mean, do you have any strategies that can improve communication skills beyond one's lack of upbringing or upbringing that, you know, their mom says, you're on your own, dude. I'm doing my best. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, and uh, I've even used it myself, although I teach this stuff for a living. Uh, I sent all of our kids, uh, well, the three that I actually raised, our fourth one was adopted when he was 19, so that was behind us, but uh, I sent them to Dale Carnegie and in, encouraged them to get, uh, to join Toastmasters, the local Toastmasters. I'm not a huge fan of Toastmasters, but because it's like an Arthur Murray dance uh, student. They all wind up dancing exactly the same. I can tell somebody who's won the regional championship in Toastmasters <clears throat> from 50 feet away because they all have the same gesture and so on. But here's what it does uh, do for you. It gets you used to standing in front of people, talking, communicating, and your pride will try and get you to be more effective. Dale Carnegie is great. Um, they did, and again, people say, you sent your son to, sons to Dale Carnegie when you teach public speaking and so on. I say, yeah, because they won't listen to me. Uh, you know, they'll nod and, and so on, but that's dad talking, and what does dad know? That's the same reason I haven't sat down with them and gone through financial planning. I send them to my financial planner who's done our work for, I don't know, since 1967 is when I first met him, P. Michael Hunt, the greatest, one of the greatest people I ever met, especially if you combine it with financing. He's forgotten more about financing than most people ever learn. So since they won't listen to me, you know, I can see their eyes rolling when I begin to talk about get a certified fee-based financial planner, blah, blah, blah. But they will listen to P. Michael Hunt and have and have done well as a result. They did listen to the Dale Carnegie instructor, and I'm ashamed to say I never met him, her, or them, but it was down in Sacramento in both cases. I sent him down the hill about 20 miles to Dale Carnegie, who were dead serious, you know, Toastmasters, sort of like the blind leading the blind, but it gives you exposure. Uh, Dale Carnegie has a neat package, point A takes you to point Z uh, and so on. So I would that's what I would recommend. And then some basic instruction. Zig Ziglar told me when I, he wound up working for me because I beat him in the contest and became president of the company, but he was 18 years older than I was. And when we first started working together at noon, September 15, 1965 in Atlanta, made sort of an impact on me. He was 18 years older and more experience. He hadn't had a big hit yet, but he'd done okay. And he was selling pots and pans in Columbia, South Carolina. But so I, I saw him speak and I thought, oh, that's good. That's not just me wandering to the front of the room and letting my mind go out my mouth. Uh, he, this is a plan. He knows what he's doing. So I asked him one day, I said, Zig, would you mind if I, uh, I'll, I'll make it worth your while. Would you mind if I 
went to some of the talks you give to groups other than when you're on script here with all the magic cosmetics, because he was also doing outside speaking. And he said, no, not at all. I said, uh, what could I do for you? And he said, well, I'll tell you what you could do. You may remember that pump he used to have, a water pump, like would come off of a farm. And it was one of his talks, uh, fleas, biscuits, and pump handles made three different points about conditioning and uh, persistence and so on. I said, you know that pump? I said, yeah, I've seen it every time you've talked. And he said, well, why don't you come to any meeting you come to where you carry the pump and set it up on the stage? I will save you a front row seat and we'll have lunch or dinner or whatever together. I said, deal. So I carried that pump into probably 50 places. And I learned watching him communicate effectively. But I learned probably even more having lunch and dinner with him. And one of the tips he gave me, I said, how do you get good at speaking? He said, do it. Get up in front of the room and do it. You'll embarrass yourself enough that you'll change those things that embarrass you. He said, you, you're not going to go to the front of the room a hundred times and do something stupid. So, well, yeah, one hope. Beg your pardon? One would hope. Yeah, one would hope. Well, I've seen some that do, but uh, by and large, you sort of self-correct out of self-preservation, if nothing else. So he said, get up in front of, never turn down us in the early days, never turn down a speaking engagement, get up in front of people, practice, practice. And then before long, within months, he was telling people, uh, see Ben Gay, how good he is. He would work a traffic accident because I had gotten to the point of two or more people were gathered together. Hi, I'm Ben Gay. And, blah, 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 and I, <laughs> I go right into my one of my talks or something I thought they might find of interest. So I got good by doing it and by watching others and by being humiliated from time to time. I was carried from a room one time in hysterics, laughing hysterics, carried under my arms feet, toes of my shoes, I was looking down at him, dragged along behind me on the carpet because I collapsed in front of about 500 people in Orlando, Florida. We're on the way to Orlando, Bill Dempsey, Jimmy Rucker, the greatest salesman I ever personally worked with, my running buddy and business partner. We're going down and Dempsey told a story, which I won't bore you with, but the punchline was, Hen it was a true story about a guy in Atlanta. The punchline was Henry, Henry, Henry. And for some reason, the story and the way Dempsey told me just cracked me. I told it just cracked me up. I laughed from the time he told the story to Orlando, Florida, from Atlanta. I laughed the whole way. I was exhausted by the time we got there. I'm one of those strange people that it, if you really get me going, I wind up under the dining room table howling. And people who know me well just keep going with their conversation. They try not to let them. Uh, bothered. So anyway, I'm up in front of this room, and I wasn't yet used to speaking in front of pretty good-sized crowds. Back then, 500 was a big crowd. And uh, I get up, I go, hi, thank you very much. My name's Ben Gay, da, 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 da. And I look in the back, and Dempsey's standing over on my left. Rucker is backing away from Dempsey because he's unrolling a big piece of butcher paper. Uh, on, I don't know where they got the butcher paper in a hotel in the middle of the night or, you know, six or seven o'clock. And I don't know where they got the marker pens, but written on the butcher paper in two foot high letters was Henry, Henry, Henry. 
And as soon as I saw it, I dropped right to my knees and, and went into hysterics. And of course, the audience, with you. Yeah, the, the audience is looking at me like, oh, that's a shame, you know. And uh, he's had an, an emotional breakdown. So now I'm pointing at the back of the room going, Henry, Henry, Henry. So they'll see the poster and be equally amused. Needless to say, well, one, they wouldn't have been amused. They didn't have the background. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> on top of that, Dempsey's sitting down looking at me like that poor creature. And I couldn't even find Rucker in the crowd. So after a while, I went into my hysterical mode. After a while, Dempsey and Rucker came up to the stage, picked me up face down under my armpits and dragged me out of the room and deposited me in, a will never forget, a wicker chair in the lobby. Where I, And as I was being dragged up the aisle, I'm turning to people, you know, sitting near the aisle and I'm going, Henry, Henry, Henry. And they're sort of backing off like you do with a crazy street person because uh, you don't want to be stabbed and you know, Casey goes totally nuts. Uh, so you have a few of those experiences, probably not to that extreme, but I, at the Hollywood Palladium, I knelt down to get something out of my briefcase, but I was on stage, and apparently my mohair suit uh, had been uh, ironed one too many times or pressed one too many times because it split, started at each knee, split from the cuff of the pants up to my underwear on both legs. Oh. That, that was in front of three or three thousand people. But by then I'd been indoctrinated with the Henry and Henry experience. <laughs> so I said to them, pardon me. I hope you're not offended by underwear, but I'm limited. I have limited time. So can I go ahead? And they all cheered. And oh. I gave the I gave the rest of the talk with my frontal part, not literally in the crotch area, but my the frontal part of my legs exposed in the Hollywood Palladium. People kill to get in front of Hollywood Palladium, and there I am, semi-naked in front of 3,000 people. But it inoculates you. After you have a few bad experiences, whether it's a sales presentation or a speech or what have you, it's like getting a chickenpox vaccine. You will never get chickenpox after you get the vaccine. There, Denise, there is nothing you could do to me in front of a crowd that would phase me. Uh, and because I have good friends who've worked for me over the years and they know the stories, trust me, they have tried. I've opened up my notes, you know, flipped open the three ring binder and there's Henry, Henry, Henry written or some recent thing that's happened to me. They've slipped into my notes or what have you. And I just look at them. I can generally know who did it. I look at them and wink and just march on. A friend of mine who used to, a lady who used to introduce me frequently named Kelly. I got up, you know, big introduction came up, standing ovation. And I said, thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen. And she said in a loud stage whisper from the front row, now you're rolling. And I looked at her, that, that would, would have gotten me in the early days. I looked at her, winked and went on with my presentation. Uh, I, I've had, uh, there used to be a thing in selling they're asking you a question. It's not an objection. They're asking you a question. So say to them, I think the question you're asking me is, and so on. I said to a guy in, in what could have been a huge sale, he said something, and I said, you're asking me a question. I think the question is, he said, I didn't ask you anything. That's an objection. Do you have an answer? Oh. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, yeah. Well, listening is important. You really do have to listen to how they're speaking to you. Look, you know, you've got people like me who can say the most obnoxious things in a soft, sweet Southern voice. I'm five miles away by the time they say, did she just insult me? Oh, yes. She was serious. Yeah. Was she serious? And, you know, my, my reaction to that is, do I need to do better? I mean, was it the, but, you know, you have to watch and listen when you're talking with people or listen. You have to listen. I think that's the biggest thing that salespeople need to, to understand. Shut up Absolutely. and listen. Absolutely. They will tell you what they want, what they want to pay for, when they want it. Right. Uh, or, or in no uncertain terms, they don't want it. They're not qualified. You didn't qualify them properly. That's not an objection. That's a condition. I don't want that. The example I always use for some reason is if you're selling oil tankers, you know, the seagoing oil tankers, don't call on me. I'm not qualified. I don't know anybody who needs an oil tanker. I'm not interested in learning about oil tankers. And when you ask me to buy it and I say, no, that's not an objection. It's a condition. You didn't do your job. You're talking to the wrong person. But for the others, they're pretty much savable. A note I made while you were talking, this is more to do with writing. But when Ms. Griffin and I started working together, said uh, I, I was supposed to write something and it was five, let's say five pages. You had to come up with five pages or something. And I got out my pen and she was standing right beside me, sitting right beside me because that's where I was placed. Uh, and I started to write on the first page, first line of the first page. He said, no, no, no. Flip back five pages. So I flipped back five blank pages, go down uh, to the bottom. I see where you're going. And she said, now on the bottom line, write your last sentence now. I said, well, I haven't written the first one. She said, that's not important. I want you to write your North Star Every other sentence, every other word you write is designed to get the reader to the last sentence. That is your North Star, and it will be their great learning experience. So when you're writing or giving a sales presentation, know where you're going. If you're writing, I always, I've written 35 books, hundreds of forwards to other people's books, uh, papers, newspaper articles and so on every single one since that day with miss griffin i uh write the last sentence first it becomes my north star and then as i'm writing i'm thinking does this contribute to getting to that last sentence will it will it make sense when we all get there together uh, and uh, it, it works unbelievably well well, it would have to, because you're no longer writing something and hoping that you can draw a conclusion somewhere down the line. You've yeah. already got the conclusion. Now you need to step back and say, okay, here's the key steps that I need to share. This is, you know, where whatever it is that I'm writing can be transformed into a, an art form of persuasion. And I see what you're doing there. Yeah, that was a, a big Big help for me while I got this script on my mind. Let me tell you another sweet thing from her. Sad, but sweet. I called her one day. I went back to Atlanta to do some business with Jimmy Rucker, now living on different coasts and so on. And we got into the let's drive past our old house. Let's go through our old neighborhood. Let's do this. And among them 
let's go to Murphy High School. And we walked in, a sign of how uh, uh, rambunctious we might have been. We walked in and the lady behind the counter who'd aged a bit since then said, Ben Gay, how are you? And I thought, oh my God, because I used to be sent to the office frequently. <laughs> they knew me. <laughs> I bet they did. I got sent to the vice principal's office a lot. Come yeah. to find out he had the hots for my mom big time. So <laughs> He was using you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Anyway, she, she was very kind to us. And I, uh, I said, well, do you mind if we just walk up and down the halls and do the stupid memory thing? She said, not at all. And be sure and drop by Mr. Evans' office, uh, classroom. I said, he's still here? Because, I don't know, probably 15 years had passed, I'm guessing. And uh, she said, oh, yeah. He doesn't teach history anymore. The neighborhood had changed. He now teaches what to do, your civil rights, if your parents are arrested. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I thought, God, one of the great teachers of in the history of the world, one of the great history teachers of the history uh, in the history of the world is teaching how to get your parents out of jail. And but we walked in. He was most gracious, recognized both of us immediately and so on. And then as we were leaving, the lady said, now be sure and call Ms. Griffin. I said, how do I do that? She gave me her number or gave me the number of downtown or something. I wound up with her phone number and Ms. Ritchie. I said, Ms. Ritchie, the art teacher? And she said, yeah, she thought she thought you were the funniest person that ever lived. Be sure oh. and call her because I didn't, I knew who she was. I knew sort of what she looked like, but art was not, it was a waste of 60 minutes of my day every right. day. And I don't know why I was there, but I must've been funny while I was there because she had told people for years, Ben Gay's the funniest person I've ever had in this class. That that was nice. Then I called Ms. Griffin and I said, you may not remember me, but my name is Ben Gay. And I, she said, Ben, how are you? Remember you? Uh, of course, I remember you. And uh, so on. I said, we would just finish up dinner. And she apparently sort of kept track of me. She said, oh, yes, it's 730 because the rich dine at seven. And I said, well, that's sweet. I mean, she said, yes, the rest of us eat at five. <laughs> so, so, anyway, I told her how she had changed my life. I was a professional speaker. She said, I know that. And I've written some books. I know that. Uh, and uh, so on. And I said, well, I, at the end of the conversation, I said, Ms. Griffin, I'm really sorry to have bothered you at home. I know uh, after all these years of teaching, I think she taught for 40 years, 40 years of teaching, a couple of hundred students a day for 40 years. You must get these calls all the time. And she reiterated what I just said to you. She said, Ben, I taught for 40 years. I taught thousands of people. You're the first person who has ever called. That's just I, sad. I almost started crying. In fact, I'm yeah, choking up right now telling you the too. story. And you I'm know. thinking while you're talking about her, there, I read a book when I was a kid. I mean, I read everything. And there was a book called Good Morning, Miss Dove. And every and I can't remember who wrote it. It's It was an old Reader's Digest book that I my parents had. And Every time you talk about Miss Griffin, I think of Good Morning, Miss Dove. Look a similar at situation. Yeah, I will. Book. I was raised on Reader's Digest. 
I was trying to think of things people ought to read, and I haven't seen Reader's Digest in years. I know it's changed its format somewhat. But I grew up with a Reader's Digest stacked 10 or 12 at a time on the back of the toilet uh, in the bathroom most of us used, uh, not mom and dad's private one. I don't, I don't know if they had them in there or not. But when you went to the bathroom and came out, usually you were asked, what did you read? Because the Reader's Digest chapters were short. They were one bathroom trip long. The Closers Part 2, I think you and I have talked about it, is filled with shorter chapters than, right. than a lot. That's Reader's Digest training. If you want to start reading to learn how to communicate more effectively and how to write more effectively, Reader's Digest might be a great place to learn. Oh, and another one uh, for effective, punchy writing and I'm almost embarrassed to say this, and I would suggest you send somebody else in to buy it for you at the grocery store. The National Enquirer is a great way to learn how to write effectively. You may not like them. You may not like what they want to, what they re, uh, write about. I remember one time standing in the grocery line, and it turned out in their headline, Dolly Parton was a space alien. Well, I didn't well. know I didn't know that. Aren't we all descended <laughs> from aliens? I think I am. I'm convinced I'm half alien, half Indian. I know I am. I mean, it just makes sense. But I guarantee A little bit you, Irish, a little bit Scottish. You know, I'm, I'm a mutt. But yeah, there's alien in there. No doubt. Well, I guarantee you, you'd learn a lot about writing. And I would have if I bought that edition and oh, read God. how they made it semi-believable. that well, Dolly uh, Parton was a Yeah, the art of persuasion. So that's the end of my friendly tips. And I suspect you haven't pulled me up short, but I think we're getting short on time. We are. We've got just a couple of minutes. So before I let you go, um, tell people about your mentorship. Tell people especially where to find these books because we talk, you know, I'm always, when I introduce us each week, I said we're working in the closers part two. Here's the pages. Listen, y'all, if you do not have these books as part of your entrepreneurial library, get them and if you don't have an entrepreneurial library why not yeah shame on you yeah that's exactly yeah. right yeah. so where can people find the books the books they can find the best place to go for the best pricing somebody said well i can get them used uh, for less than that i say i have had it in the, but in the days of covid i've sort of gotten out of buying used books and he said oh i hadn't thought of that what's that website again so anyway, go to stores, S-T-O-R-E-S dot eBay dot com, C-O-M uh, forward slash all one word Ronzoni books, R-O-N-Z-O-N-E-B-O-O-K-S, Ronzoni books, lower pricing, free shipping, which I don't offer, uh, but they bring them to me after you buy them and I sign them and date them just as if we'd sold them to you directly. And they still come with the unconditional lifetime, no questions asked, money back guarantee. As for mentoring, just shoot me an email. My email is BFG3, stands for Benjamin Franklin Gay, the third BFG, the numeral three, at Direct con D I R E C T C O N as in November dot net and just mention that you want to know about mentoring, no cost, no obligation. 
I won't talk to you. You're not going to be trapped in a sales call, but I will send you via email uh, some information about the mentoring program. And we're about to have a couple of slots. You couldn't join today if you wanted to, but soon I think you will be. I have reason to believe. So get in line. And now you tell them what you're up to, Denise, with your new projects. We're running out of time, I'm afraid, but I'm easy to find on social media. And thank you, Ben, but you can find me all over the internet. You can't throw a stick, you know, at Denise Griffiths or Ben Gay the Third or your partner in Success Radio without hitting one or all of us. So uh, we can talk about that next week. What I wanted to do next week, Ben, is let's follow up, and I may have mentioned this already, but let's follow up with the importance of speaking and writing in sales and the differences because writing and speaking and sales, they really do serve the same fundamental purpose, which is to persuade and convert prospects into customers, but they do so in very distinctive ways and you're leveraging different skills and strategies. So we're going to dive into that. So everybody go find us on your partner in success radio. We will be here. That one's Hamilton is an ass. Sorry about that. We will be here every Wednesday. He has his own hashtag and he gets Christmas cards. Just look for us and we look forward to speaking with you every week. Oh, and before I let everybody go, if you have questions for us, whether it's about success at any level, really, whether it's about podcasting, whether it's about sales, look for us, send us messages. I'm going to smack him, you know. He's got kid that's running across the 18th time. He's about to get clobbered, <laughs> but just go look for us. Ask us questions. We will answer them on this podcast. So thank you, everybody. Ben, I will talk with you next week. All right, Denise. Thank you. Have a wonderful week. You too. Bye.